Hi, I'm Evacheska DeAngelis, and I am here to welcome you to our internet radio broadcast, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Mind, Body, Health, and Politics brings you wide-ranging, uncensored conversations containing up-to-date information with prominent, nationally acclaimed authorities, scientists, and best-selling authors. We feature a wide variety of topics ranging from psychedelic science, expanding consciousness, mental and physical health, human sexuality, the environment, social justice, and much more. This program has been hosted by my father, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller, for 20 years, and we continue to broadcast because you listen. So please give us your support by subscribing free of charge at mindbodyhealthpolitics.org and joining our growing community. And now, here's my dad and today's guest. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance your physical and emotional well-being and encourage community. I say encourage community because I believe that living in community is the most effective and healthiest way for we humans to live. We enjoy one another as a species. We like doing things together. We tend to be cooperative and collaborative. We do all kinds of things together, whether it's a sewing circle or a poker game or watching a sporting event or playing a sporting event. Just look around and you'll see so many places where we congregate to be with other people. But while we're doing this, we must also be aware of the fact that a very small percentage of us are very different. These people are predators and they would dominate the rest of the tribe. These are the people when we came out of the caves had the biggest club and they ruled with the club and it's Thousands and ten thousands of years later, they're still attempting to rule with the club. Look at the history. As we came out of the caves and those with the clubs ruled, and then we became towns and hamlets, and eventually those strongest became what they called kings or strongmen. Look through history and you'll see whether it was the pharaohs or Genghis Khan jumping forward in history, Julius Caesar when he jumped and turned their experiment with a republic into an empire, forward to Genghis Khan, where do you want to go? Napoleon, more recently, Hitler, Mussolini, more recently, Putin, Bolsonaro, Trump. These are all people who would have us be subjects rather than citizens. It was our founders who, after 1,700 years of kings and kingdoms, where a person could have their head chopped off for no other reason than the flick of the hand of a king. It was our founders who took us from being beholden to a king and to the church into what our present experiment with a democracy and a republic. A democracy, one person, one vote. A republic, everyone equal before the law, including former presidents. This is our experiment. And we must be mindful and we must work together to maintain this experiment because a democracy in a republic so far is the most effective way for the most people to benefit, to share. We must be ever mindful there are those who would take this away and once again have us be 
subjects rather than citizens. Remember to vote. Remember to do what you can to maintain our democracy and our republic. In the words of one of my great heroes, Thomas Jefferson, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, I have the privilege of being here with Dr. Rachel Harris. We're going to be talking about her book, Swimming in the Sacred. She's also the author of Listening to Ayahuasca and many, many published articles. Be sure and check out Dr. Rachel Harris on Google, and you'll find out a lot more about her. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Rachel. Thank you, Richard. I'm really pleased to be here. So your latest book, Swimming in the Sacred, it consists of a great deal of interviews with very special women, women who have spent their lives as, shall we, can we use the word guides? What word can we use that feels comfortable for you in describing what these women do and what they are? Well, you know, what? when I started to interview these underground women elders, my criteria was that they'd been practicing for at least 20 years, and I made the assumption that they were psychedelic therapists, and I was totally wrong. They're not therapists. They don't even do really much of integration. They're really priestesses. They do the ceremony. They do the ritual, and they do the magic, you know, in the middle of the night, mostly. They're not they, they might refer to therapists who are knowledgeable, but they are not interested in doing therapy with people. They're interested in facilitating transformation using the entheogens. And the transformation that they're interested in doing takes place during the ceremony, but they do not get involved in the work thereafter, which is now we are calling integration work. Is that correct? Right. Right. They, they would all say, oh, yes, we do integration. But what they really mean is maybe they meet with the person once or twice, maybe over the phone they talk to them, but they're not really in a, in a therapeutic process with the client. They really, their focus is on the ceremony itself. And so I sort of see them as priestesses, not ministers, not in a religious sort of way, but sacred priestesses. And how did it come about that you decided to interview these people? I asked that question because I did a book that's sort of a cousin to your book yeah. called Psychedelic Wisdom, where I interviewed prominent therapists and doctors and professional people who have personally been self-experimenting with psychedelics for 40 or 50 years. These are all elders. And one of mine yeah. was in their 90s also. Now, right. I had a reason for doing the book, and I want to. What I'm leading up to is asking what your reason was. My reason was I wanted to counter the half century or more of disinformation that the federal government has been putting out to the American public about the dangers of these psychedelics, total misguided disinformation. And I thought if the public could see and hear that prominent people, good people, good parents, contributing members of society have been using these psychedelics for many decades, it would contribute towards righting the wrongs that have been done. Where that's, are you? That's a great reason. It's a great reason. Uh, 
I wasn't as conscious. I wasn't as intentional, I have to confess. What happened was the listening to ayahuasca book connected me to some of the women, especially in the San Francisco Bay Area. And one woman led me to another woman. And so it was sort of a snowball kind of connection. And I, I think, you know, I'm the first person outside their circle that they talked to. Other, other, they, they had sworn a vow of secrecy. So I think they saw the ayahuasca book and they trusted me. And we had sort of similar backgrounds. I was in some of the same places that these women were in the 60s. And they chose to be trained and work underground. And I chose to go to graduate school. So they felt that I was simpatico and safe. And they, I think they were right. I have great respect for them. And so the, the, the book sort of grew organically as I met with one and then another, and I, I kept making notes. So, and, and, I, and I didn't want to, it's not a how-to book. It's not a book that's based on interviews. It, it's not a transcript of interviews, but it's, and it's my attempt, having interviewed these women, to identify themes that I felt that they had in common and were really essential for the practice of working with the entheogens. And I, I also feel like it's sort of a historical document. These women have been working, my criteria was 20 years, but most of them had been working 30, 40 years, and they're not going to be around forever. And I wanted to give them a voice in the current use of psychedelics because they have a unique voice and a unique place in history. You mentioned that you wanted to organize the book around themes, common themes that you heard from these various women. Will you describe some of the themes that stand out for you, please? Yes, they all they 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 all worked on themselves first. It's not like they said, "Oh, I'm going to I'm going to lead ceremonies. I'm going to work with people with these amazing medicines." They worked on themselves first using the medicines. And they um, they worked with the elders from the 50s and early 60s because it was such a, you know, people sort of tended to know each other. So maybe, I don't know how they found these people and sometimes in a serendipitous way, but they found mentors to work with. So they worked on themselves intensively for years and then they worked alongside other more experienced priests and priestesses. Everyone so, had their own so- story. But it sounds like what they had in common is they all followed a kind of shamanistic mentoring process. Yes. Is that correct? Yes. And that, that they worked on themselves within that process. And, so and, I, you... and, the con- and the contrast is that someone now who's a licensed therapist can take a one-year course over the Internet and say, all right, I'm ready to sit with people but they don't have their own experience of healing with the entheogens, which really takes years, and they don't have a mentor. So it's a very different process these days. So what what you're saying is the modern people might be learning as a kind of tactic or learn in sort of a technical way rather than learning in a, more, a deeper emotional, personal way. Is that correct? They don't have the experience. These, they don't have... these women use every psychedelic drug at every dosage. They have a lot of experience in their bones, in their bodies. And so their intuition comes from 
those years of experience and the work they did on themselves. You know, I, I, I was talking to one of the women and I happened to say, you know, not all therapists have ever had their own therapy. And she just could not believe it. Well, th- how is that possible? And I said, well, it's not, re- it's not required in every situation. It's not part of licensing. And she just could not believe that was possible. So they came from that era where one of the, one of the axioms was, you can only take someone as far as you've gone. So, that, so they've done the work on themselves. So they know the territory and they know their own self in that territory and their intuition comes from that inner experience. When, when they say, I mean, I understand deeply what they mean when they say you can only take someone as far as you've gone yourself. At, at the same time, I think it's generally agreed that when we give someone a psychedelic, when we're the administrator of the psychedelic, our job is to do as little as possible and not lead the person, but be there when they need us. Yeah. Isn't, isn't... Yes, I, I, I would agree. And so that's why the word guide is, is not a great word, because really, they're not it, really guiding. It's really it's, not it's a, a great word, is it, Rachel? No, no. But it's, it's really about their presence and their being able to kind of, in, in, based on their intuition and kind of a psychic following, that they kind of have a sense of where the person is in the realm of that medicine. I mean, w- one of the other axioms is y- you only give a medicine that you yourself know. And so you really know the territory of that medicine and you know it from your own inner experience. And that helps you to sort of follow the person because you're not, you know, the person is often under a blanket with earphones and eye shades. You don't have a lot of cues like, we do in regular therapy. You're not seeing a face. So they ha- it's really an intuitive, energetic sense of what's happening with this person. And so it's about the women's presence. And that presence is very embodied and it's based on their own experience. And that's what's not, not really there in a, in a new person. They don't have the years of experience and their own inner work. Do the women individually or as a group have a name for what they do that is better than guide because you and I just agree that guide a guide yeah. a guide is just someone who leads you somewhere through the forest right. or through the jungle right. and, yeah, and, it, see, and this is right. not a no this isn't leading this is being right. with we need a better word do they have a better word you know I, I I can't believe I didn't really ask them I should I should go back and, and ask them you know sometimes I wish you, they're more I Sometimes wish you would. I wish you would ask them. I would love to know, yeah. you know, how do they, right. how do they sort of call themselves, you know? Yeah. Because yeah. I have, yeah. I'll let you know that. Well, that's why I, I've been calling them priestesses because I think, I think their roots, I identify them like the priestesses at Eleusis. I mean, they, you know, they have the secrets and they, they know where you're going. They know the mystery. They've been there themselves. And, so that's how I see them. Yeah, the difficulty I have with priestess, though, is it has religious overtones. I know that's a problem. Me we too. need some neutral good word. <laughs> yes. Let's. We'll be thinking about it. We'll be yes, thinking exactly. we'll be thinking about it. <laughs> now, you and I took very different routes because we both went back to graduate school and got PhDs and went in a more professional. In fact, what we discovered prior to this interview. <laughs> 
<laughs> is how close our paths have been. We were both at the Esalen Institute in the 60s. Right. We both pretty early in life self-experimented with psychedelics, and we both had huge experiences that really had an effect on the course of our lives, didn't we? Yes, yes. Now, yeah, it's very, it's very interesting to look back and say, what, what were the stepping stones? What experiences shaped and informed our lives? And, and part of my theory, it didn't hold true for absolutely every woman I interviewed, but many of the women had unusual spiritual experiences when they were very young. Without any drugs, of course, they were children. So they were spontaneous spiritual experiences. And that sort of opened the path for them to eventually find their way to the psychedelic. Yes, I read that in the book, how they had many childhood. In fact, I read the whole list that you have. Do you identify yeah. with any of these with any of these different things? I thought it was a really fun, fun list to yeah. read and see, you know, which right. ones we could identify with. Well, one of the things that, that you and I share is that in our early experiences with psychedelics, we had the sense that many people, others have had as well, of feeling very at one with and connected to what we call nature. It, it, for myself, I had the, the sense very early on that I no longer was an animal living on the earth, but that the whole thing was all one big organism and that I was just part of this much larger organism. And so was all of humanity and all the animals and everything else. Uh -huh. So it, so it changed me from thinking I was living on something to to thinking I was sort of a cell or be or part of the something, which is a very yeah. different feeling. Yeah. And, yes. And that was early. That was in the 60s. You had that. So that was before it became more culturally accepted. The, uh, that experience was 1965 when I oh. ate 400 morning glory seeds oh, that, uh, that, that Leary and Alpert talked about in the back of their Tibetan Book of the Dead. They said, if you can't get LSD, get pearly gates or heavenly blue morning glory seeds. I went out and bought every seed in town. <laughs> and, and it wasn't so easy eating 400 no. morning glory seeds. No, no. I'm sure you coughed them up. No, yeah. but, but that experience, <laughs> that first experience was, was a major consciousness and life changer because of yeah. that sense of unity, because of the sense of connection with everything and everybody, that there was no such a thing as other anymore, that it was all us. And, and uh, it changed my political views for the, for the realization that we have to work it out collaboratively on the planet. There's no such a thing as winning. <laughs> oh, wow! You you were certainly ahead of your that you were ahead of your time. Well, yeah, the, I, the medicine did that to me. I mean, yeah, I might have been ready for it, but but there was some connection between me and the and, and that, and I knew. And and by the way, that that first trip wasn't all pleasant. There was some scary stuff as well. But I learned yeah. from but I learned from the scary stuff for sure. Yeah. So you used it well. Did you have someone with you? We two of us took the seeds and we had two people with us to sit uh, with us. We we somehow knew enough to know that. Yeah. 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 But now that was LSD. In my understanding, your early big experience was ayahuasca. Is that correct? 
No, no. I had LSD in, in when I was in, in my early 20s in Big Sur. Oh, you did? So I, I had early, yeah. You know, I was living in Big Sur for a number of years, so there were plenty of drugs around. So I had early experiences. And then I had a big break when I was in my householder period where I was raising my daughter. And pretty much as soon as she was finishing graduate school, then I got called by Grandmother Ayahuasca and found myself in a ceremony. That's interesting. I had somewhat of a break raising the kids too. And then, yeah. I, and then I very strongly got back into it because I was ready and I was waiting until I had the, you know, the time and to be able to do that. Yeah. But you came back to ayahuasca and that's what led you to, to get involved and write your book, Listening to Ayahuasca? Yes, that's the story. And I wasn't, here's again a little theme here. I wasn't intentional about this. What happened was I describe it in the Listening to Ayahuasca book is that I just signed up for a retreat in some, you know, this place in Costa Rica that was right on the ocean, between the ocean and the rainforest. I, I was in New Jersey at the time and it was February and I thought this sounded pretty good. I was just going for a vacation. And the day before I left, somebody called me and said, do you want to participate in the ceremony? And I said, what ceremony? I had no clue. And so once I figured out what it was, I was ready. <laughs> and so that's what happened with ayahuasca. I sort of fell into it. You fell into it. And, and, and then I continued. I mean, I sought it after that. I continued. And what are some of the things that you would like to pass on, just like you're interviewing these women because you believe it's historically important that what they have learned and how they've lived their lives, you believe is historically important to pass on. And I believe it's historically important to pass on what you have gleaned from all this and some of your path. So what, what would you like to share as a tribal elder from your journey? Well, you know, we were, we were sharing a little bit of our experience at Esalen in, in the 60s and kind of reminiscing that the word integration was not part of the scene back then. Nobody considered it. And so for me, the focus has always been after the ceremony. What, what do you do with what you've experienced? So that's been the most, that's been my focus from the very beginning. And, and how, how does your experience manifest in your life? And the way these women work is they're not, it's in contrast to the research team that are working with specific diagnoses and looking at symptom reduction. The women are not, they're not medically oriented like that. So they're working with people who are seeking healing, but maybe are also doing okay in their lives and, and are, are wanting to have a ceremony for their own evolution. So it's, it's a little bit different. And what they're looking for is signs of transformation in the person's life after the ceremony. So are they living up to their calling? Are they contributing to their community? Are their relationships better? I mean, there's sort of questions that, that they have a different way of looking at what happens afterwards because they don't want to work with people just for the experience. They don't want to have people just coming back again and again unless they're really living their lives in a, in a transformed way. So because the research teams have focused so much on the mystical experience, they're now getting phone calls 
saying, you know, I'd like to do a ceremony because I'd like to have a mystical experience. So the women have to say, well, we can't just order that. This is, you know, we can't just order that up. (laughs) So, you know, that's the sort of thing that they're dealing with and their perspective is quite different. And it's much broader. It's the use of these medicines throughout a lifespan. So people might come to them once a year, maybe twice a year. Maybe they bring their family or their partner. I mean, I've sat in ayahuasca ceremonies with three generations, adults and from the same family. And it's an honor to be in their presence while they're working on the family lineage. So the, the women have a much bigger perspective. I can, I can, I love quoting them. So here's, here's a quote. Here's the, I, this woman I call the eldest of the elders. She trained with Leo Zeff who you can, you, you, you recommend The Secret Chief Revised, and it's the one book I recommend for new psychedelic therapists. But here's her, and she's about 90 now. Here's her quote. We are responsible for our intentions and our choices, responsible to ourselves and to humanity. So you get a sense of a really big perspective to humanity. It's a very larger perspective than just reducing one person's symptoms. And so that, I think that's, that's part of what I certainly want to preserve. And it raises the question of, well, after a ceremony, how do I contribute to humanity? What's my responsibility and my intention? It sounds like we're really talking about two different populations coming for psychedelic experiences. One group is looking for healing for specific issues, such as post-traumatic stress disorder, end-of-life anxiety, depression, etc. And the other group looking for what we might call transformation or consciousness expansion. They're not looking... Well, they might also call it healing, but it's in service of this kind of transformation. It's not not because of such extreme suffering as the the study subjects have lived with. I'm going to tell you a cute story about, uh, you mentioned Leo Zeff, the secret chief. He was a good friend and a neighbor. He lived about eight houses down from me at a certain time of my life. And we hung out together and he trained me and gave me just about, I mean, all kinds of things from his, from his, what he called his GIS, his GIS. It was G-I-C-S, just no, J J I J I C S his just just in case stash. He always had a just in case stash, right? And out of his just in case stash, he would pull ibogaine, he'd pull LSD, oh he'd God. pull all kinds of things. And right. so, so one day I I I stopped in to see him, but I was on my way to work at the time. I was leading this uh, chemical dependence program that I started called Cokeenders Alcohol and Drug Program in the 80s. And I stopped in. I said, Leo, I'm suffering from tremendous anxiety. And I said, I thought I conquered anxiety, you know, maybe 10, 20 years ago. And I knew how to handle anxiety. And all of a sudden, I've got this anxiety again. What, 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 what do you what can you say? And he looks at me with a big smile on his face and he starts to laugh. And, I, and, I, and, he, and he says to me, good. I say, Leo, what, I'm talking about anxiety, like a terrible feeling in my chest and my stomach. And it feel like imminent doom. And you're saying, good. What, 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 what do you mean, good? He says, 
now you'll know even more deeply what your patients are bringing to you. Oh my God. Even telling the story, I tear up. Yeah, he was, he was really an amazing, an amazing person. I have a question about our lives. I, I wonder if there's something that we might make of the fact that both of us sharing this journey from Esalen in the 60s till now, 60 years later almost. Yeah, oh, sure. You're living on an island, and I've been living remotely as well, as I told you, at Wilbur Hot Springs since 1972. I came from a combination of the jungle in Florida, but then a great deal of time in Manhattan. For a kid from Manhattan who went to Stuyvesant High School and then graduate yeah. school to be living remotely, you know, after teaching at the yeah. University of Michigan and Stanford and so on, to be living so remotely for so many decades, and you're living on an island with 50 people. I think it's more than a coincidence. I don't think it's, <laughs> it's more than a coincidence. There's something that, yeah. that's worth uh, us looking into together. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's certain the it's certainly the spiritual connection to nature, and and that when I left Esalen, I it I missed Big Sur more than Esalen Institute. It was very hard to get Big Sur out of my system, and I I went back frequently for many years for different social reasons, mostly weddings and different things like that. It was very hard to lose that experience of living in such extreme beauty. Well, yeah, and, I, uh, that, of course, is how I got to Fort Bragg in Mendocino County on the Pacific, because yeah. it's it's very similar to Big Sur, but it's a gentler, yeah. a gentler cliff to get down to the water. Yeah, if, everywhere it's a little gentler, except here it's, it's kind of a granite cliff. It's, it's a it's, a, you know, a rocky edge and the ocean waves splashing up. It's similar. Do you have starling? No, some people do here. But you're using some other kind of internet connection. Yeah, and we and we just got upgraded. The federal government gave money to rural areas, so we're getting I I forget what it's called, but we're getting a a, a huge upgrade. They're just putting it in now. I see. You mentioned something that it's been on, has been on my mind as I'm conducting interviews with various people in the psychedelic world, and that is the timing of the ceremonies. The people down in South America have a tradition of s starting their ceremonies late at night. Yeah, and so many people, and so many people who have studied down there and come up and lead ceremonies start them late at night. From a science point of view, that doesn't make sense to me and never has. It seems to me that we're better taking these medicines at nine or 10 in the morning. So we have the day when we are at our strongest to be having the ceremony and the experience. Whereas when you take it at night, by two or three o'clock in the morning is when our diurnal sleep rhythm changes and we get cold and we want to crawl in and sort of get, you know, inside that way. And I don't know what the origin of starting at night was, was down in the jungle, but I really question the value of continuing that tradition. Do you have any thoughts on that topic? Well, I... I you know, I, I'm not sure. I, I can ask someone who might know, but you can see more things in the dark. I, I know this sounds counterintuitive, but shamanically, energetically, you can see more things in the dark than during the day. And that's a big part of what the shaman is doing. 
he's seeing into the person's body and singing with an intention toward doing some cleaning. So the dark opens the vision. But aren't we in the dark when we wear blindfolds, whether it's during the day or at night? Leo Zeff always had me wear blindfolds. Yeah, but the shaman don't wear blindfolds. It's the, sh- the shaman have sort of this x-ray vision where they can see energetically into the body so they can energetically pinpoint what they're wanting to clean out. And the women that you have interviewed, do they feel that way, that they can energetically see things? Have they developed well, that sense? Well, there's, there's one woman who trained with a Shabipo shaman, and she would say, yes, absolutely, because that's her training and that's her orientation, and she works at night. Another woman trained with Southeast Asian shamans, and I don't know, I'm not sure what she would say, but the, the rest of the women, most of them work with a lot of different medicines. So it depends which medicine they're working with. So some of them do work with ayahuasca, but many of them work with MDMA and psilocybin. So there's a full range, and that may determine the timing of the ceremony. Do some of them mix the different medicines during that, the same? That, that, that's, that's begun to happen in ways that I, I had never known. I just didn't know about, but Many of them sort of, you know, I forget, it's called candy flipping or something, where they might start with MDMA and then add psilocybin. So they're really expert at using it, how to use the medicine. And, you know, I was interviewing one woman in her garden, and she trained mostly with, I think, uh, certainly a South American shaman. I forget if he's Peruvian or another country. At the end of our day together, it was around five o'clock in the afternoon. And she said, well, I'm going to drink tonight. And I said, but you're not doing a ceremony. She said, no, but I'm serving this medicine and it's a new batch and I have to know the medicine. So I have to take it myself tonight. And then tomorrow night I'll do a ceremony with people. So you see, that's one of the axioms of know your own medicine before you serve it. And she was getting ready to do that as the sun was setting. I got out of there. (laughs) Um, I'm not going to. (laughs) Question. Did the women that you interviewed talk about using a bit of the medicine while they administered it to the other person? Yeah, this is really important because I'm hearing that some so-called psychedelic therapists are saying, I need to take a small dose so I know, so I can follow the person, so I can be in the same energetic space. And I have a very strong position on this. And I say, no, unless that's part of your tradition, like it is with ayahuasca, you know, I, what I say to people is don't go with, don't go to someone who's a sitter or a guide who says they need to take the medicine. If you've taken enough medicine in your life and worked on yourself with medicine, you can follow that person energetically without having any medicine in you. So that's not necessary at all. I stand with you on that 100%. I am very, I am, I'm strongly opposed to the guide or sitter or therapist take doing anything but remaining 100% unaltered. I I think that's, I think that's part of what we provide is sober responsibility to take care of anything that might happen, including a leaky pipe or a hole in the roof. Or right, something anything. that happens, you know, if somebody comes to the door or there's a fire, right. you know, you want a person who's. And so 
I, I, I question those who are bringing back from the jungle that they are taking these medicines along with the other person. And I think, I think we've got a conflict there that we're going to have to deal with. Well, that's the tradition in, in, the, in the ayahuasca indigenous communities. That's the tradition. But what, what the people who I know who are working with ayahuasca, often they have a helper or two. And that helper may take a very, very teeny dose. So, so there is someone there who's fairly straight. But I, I want to respect the tradition. So I think that's a different situation. But someone who says, well, I need to, to join you a little bit on this psychedelic journey because that's the only way I'll know where you are. They don't have enough experience. I say, don't go with them. Well, we've got an issue of interest here, Rachel. And that is you're pointing out how these experts took years of personal discovery and study with masters in order to be able to do their jobs so well. I at know the where very you're same going. right. <laughs> but at the very same time, while we're having this psychedelic renaissance, I just read this morning that the number of people who have been experimenting with psychedelics has doubled in the last three years. Oh wow. Yeah. Now it's still a small percentage of the population, but it went from three percent to six percent. Now, wow. a 3% increase on 330 million people is a lot of mm. people, even though the a percentage is small. What I'm leading up to, Rachel, is how are we going to provide guides or sitters or priestesses to this extraordinary number of people when it takes so long by these traditional methods to become expert? We've got an issue here. And it's gonna. It, it's a serious one because we're li what we're liable to see is what you described earlier in the interview, which is people who take an online course and then they go out to be guides, and because they might have a professional license like you and I do as clinical psychologists, it would enable them possibly when everything is legalized to be the guide. But yet you're saying clearly this isn't something you learn online. No, it's a, I, I, I don't I don't see a solution. So this is something I've worried about. And I expect there will be more emergency room situations because people will get in over their heads. And here's the way this is what I say to myself so I can sleep at night. And that is if someone is deciding I want to I want to find a therapist to work with me over some issues. There's a whole smorgasbord of therapies available and different therapists. And so everyone has to sort of find their own person. And some of them are going to be a lot better than others. And so this is what it's going to be like also with psychedelic guides or priestesses or therapists. This is going, it's going to be the same thing. So be very, very careful who you choose. And, and, the, and if you're searching for someone, you have every right to ask them, how many years have you been working with these medicines? How much experience do you have with other medicines? Who trained you? How did you learn? Do you have a consultant that you talk to about what a, a supervisor, basically? You have every right to ask these medicines. The way one of the elder women suggested, it's a little, I, I found it almost too much to the point, but she said, the question to ask is, who authorized you to serve these medicines? That goes right to the point. It goes right to the point, 
And I want to build on what you just said, Rachel, because the, the brilliance of what you said is that it applies to so many areas of our functioning. Yeah. Why shouldn't we, when we go to have our brakes fixed for our car, say to the person, shouldn't we be able to say to the person, how many brakes have you fixed before this? When we go for a colonoscopy, shouldn't we be able to say to the doctor, how many colonoscopies have you done before? When we go for various other medical procedures, as well as mechanical procedures, aren't we responsible to ourselves and our families to ask these important questions that you have brought to us? They don't just, uh, apply, know, they don't just apply to psychedelics. No. They apply no. to they apply to life, to life, to life. Yeah, right. As yeah. Infor as informed citizens, we're right. entitled to ask these tough questions, and that in and of itself would be quite evolutionary if we could teach ourselves and our public to be able to ask these questions, and for those of us offering services to be able non defensively to give candid answers. Yes. Yes. Yeah, if if you're looking for a therapist, you have every right to ask that therapist, have you yourself been in therapy? How many times was it successful? You can ask that question. You know, I interviewed a this is a little aside but I'll share with you. I interviewed a a, a, a priest, his name is actually Hunt Priest, who wanted to experiment with psychedelics in his early 50s after a lifelong of believing everything the government yeah. said. And he had such a hard time finding a therapist that after he had the experience and had such a life-changing, marvelous experience, he started a whole organization called the Christian Psychedelic Society, whose total job it is to help priests find reputable guides. Right. Isn't right. that interesting? It is. It's another approach. Another that's, approach. You know, yeah, that's helpful. It is helpful. <laughs> but I want to underline what you're bringing to us, Rachel, which is we have the right to ask the questions you're raising. Where did you get trained? How many of these have you done? The kind of questions yeah. that are going to make yeah. you feel comfortable that you're in competent hands. Right, right. And so I tell people, you know, if someone's searching for a ceremony, I say, excuse me, I say, take your time, don't rush, and, and be careful. Of the various psychedelic molecules that you've had the good fortune to experiment with, mm -hmm. do you have favorites? And do you have favorite ones for specifics? Well, you know, I'm not near as experienced as these women elders are. You know, I'm much more careful and fearful, they are afraid of nothing. So they could answer that question in a much more meaningful way than I can. But I, I have to say my attachment is to ayahuasca, even though it's a tough ceremony. That's my, that's my home medicine. And tell and us what you that, mean. That's what I feel is in my body. That's what, that's what I mean. And tell us what you mean by, even though it's a tough ceremony, what does tough mean? Well, you know, there's there's vomiting, there's diarrhea. It's really not often a pleasant kind of experience. <laughs> you know, I what I realized is as I was beginning to interview women is that I had never done any of these medicines in the protocol that's used today in the study in the research studies. 
with the eye shades and earphones and under a blanket. I had always been out in nature. I mean, that's what we did in the 60s. And so I said, well, you know, I have, I have to do this. So one of the women sat with me for an MDMA session. And I thought, oh, this will be great. This will be fun. It'll be heart opening. It'll be a wonderful experience. Well, I went right to the ayahuasca territory. I mean, I was, I could have just as easily been in an ayahuasca ceremony. I didn't vomit, but it was, it was a tough one. It was all about death and dying and it was helpful. It was, it was interesting and helpful and, and really did shift my relationship to my own, around my own issues about dying. But after about five hours, I crawled to the bathroom, just like you see in ayahuasca ceremonies. You see people crawling to the bathroom. And, you know, that's not usually an MDMA kind of... No, not at all. But I can, I can certainly relate to the crawling. And I can also tell you yeah. there were times when I didn't make it to the crawl. <laughs> oh, so is that ayahuasca? <laughs> yes, that was ayahuasca. Yes, yeah, of course. You know, so delightful. Yeah. So that was that. But I have to say, one of the benefits of being with one of these elders is after I crawled back from the bathroom, you know, I was beginning, it was five, six hours into it. I was beginning to, I was on the downside, on the downslope. And she sat, she, she had eagle feather fans and different herbs and, and different things to smell. I mean, she just worked on me for about an hour, clearing my energy. And it was the best clearing I'd ever experienced. I mean, and it's because this was part of her traditional training that she knew how to do that. She had worked with a Native American. She'd been adopted by a Native American grandfather. And so she burned, I don't know, cedar or something. I mean, she had all different kinds of smells and feathers and, and it was just fabulous. And so that's the kind of opportunity that you have with someone who's well-trained and well-experienced that that doesn't happen when you're on your own. Rachel, we've been talking about the good. Oh, yeah. What about the ugly? Did these women share stories of adverse effects or do you know of adverse effects or have you had adverse effects that you can share with us? Well, you know, what What I want to say is because I'm, I, you know, I, I talk to a lot of people in, in the psychedelic world. So yes, I interviewed these women, but I also spoke to a lot of other women and, and not just women, a lot of other people and anybody who's an old timer and, you know, you might chime in on something here too, knows somebody who was so damaged from a, an experience that their lives were forever changed and not in a good way. And so there are serious stories of this. You know, one of the women who was very experienced and, and trained mostly by Stan Groff, let me say totally by Stan Groff, she said in the middle of the ceremony, she realized she had to take this person to the ER. That's a very tough decision because you're, she was going with him, walking into the ER, having to give the information about an illegal drug. And so that takes a lot of inner strength and clarity to make that decision. And she just happened to be lucky that the doctor in the ER was simpatico, realized what he was dealing with and, and did not report her and treated the guy and protected her. But you take your chances. Who knows what's going to happen to you when you have to do that? So serious things can happen and you want someone who knows what they're doing and is willing to be responsible. That, that was quite a sobering story, she told me. That is a very sobering story. 
We all have those stories. You're 100% correct. That's right. And my science mind asked the question, what can we learn from the stories of adverse effects to more adequately prepare us, not just what to do in the event of one of these adverse effects, such as go to the ER, but should we be vetting people more carefully with the possibility that there are certain people or groups of people who simply aren't candidates for these medicines. What are your thoughts yeah. on that? Well, that's, a, that's another warning. I tell people don't go to any kind of ceremony where someone has not done a very detailed medical history that takes way over an hour or, or that you filled out a form and then someone talked to you. And by form, I mean at least a dozen pages of your medical history. It has to be very well done. And you want to know that whoever is doing that medical intake screening has a medical professional, a doctor, a nurse practitioner, they can refer to with questions. So don't go to anyone who doesn't do that. That's one thing I say that's a, that's a real warning. You know, another old friend told me he was in L.A. in the, in the early 60s, and he knew one of the psychiatrists who was doing a lot of work. And he said, this psychiatrist said to him, I would never take you on as a client because you have an uncle who was schizophrenic. And I said, an uncle? Really? It's not, not exactly direct. He said, no, he would never. It was direct enough for him in the family history that he would never take him on as a client. So people were, you know, very careful back then as well. Well, what that psychiatrist was saying was at this stage of our education about these substances, I'm going to be as careful as possible exactly. in order to take the, right, in order to risk your sanity. Yes, and it, absolutely. That's a, a very- and, and, and my and my freedom. And my, and my reputation and my license. And, yes, right. Exactly. Yes. So yes, I think we have to be very serious about this. And so, so you know what I, I what I, you know, I have to. What do I say to myself when I when I worry about how things are going? Because there's plenty of stuff to worry about. Is <laughs> what I say. Well, you know, in some ways, we're an immature culture, and we're in the process, hopefully, of learning how to use these medicines in a variety of different ways. So you are absolutely right when you referred to the studies or looking at people who who need serious help with their symptoms and their diagnosis and then you know some of the work in the underground is for psycho spiritual opening so these are different ways of using the medicines and the studies are usually completed within 3 months it's one or two ceremonies and then you're done but the way the underground women work people might come back to them every year for the rest of their lives and i i love giving the example of albert hoffman who, you know, was the chemist who synthesized LSD. He lived to be, let me see, I have it here. He lived to be 102 years old. And when he was 97, he did his last LSD trip. So you can see that the medicines can be used over a whole lifespan. And they do, you know, they do different things at different times in life. Well, God willing and the creek don't rise. Yeah. I'll follow his example. And... Uh... <laughs> And maybe take some on my 100th birthday. <laughs> Anything else before we close the interview that you can think of? Take a pause, if you like. If there's anything else you'd like to share about swimming in the sacred 
about your vast experience, about your interviews with these women. Any well, tips? Yeah, take, yeah. Take, good. Let me quote Laura Huxley, right? Excellent. Not a okay. bad sort. Yes. The, the most challenging aspect of guiding is to keep themselves out of their client's journey. And that's a big part of the purpose of doing your own work, to keep your psyche, your unconscious, out of your client's journey. Read it to us again. I like that. The most challenging aspect of guiding is to keep themselves out of their client's journey. To keep themselves out of their client's journey. That's what I was saying before when I was saying to do as little. Yeah, you know, we have as to learn little, to do yes. as to do as little as possible. Yes, elegantly. To do as little as possible elegantly <laughs> with I'm presence gonna, and awareness. <laughs> I'm going to take a turn and read something from your book. Okay. <laughs> this is on page 217, and I can't pronounce the man's name, but he's an Aboriginal elder named David. Oh, yeah. I can't, I can't pronounce it either. Mawil Jarbalai. Very hard to pronounce. But here's Australian the Australian Aboriginals. You have a feeling in your heart that you're going to feed your body this day. Get more knowledge. You go out now. See animals moving. See trees, a river. You are looking at nature and giving it your full attention, seeing all its beauty. Your vision is opened and you start learning now. When you touch them, all things talk to you, give you their story. It makes you really surprised. You feel you want to go deeper, so you start moving around and stamp your feet to come closer and to recognize what you're seeing. You understand that your mind is open to all these things because you're seeing them, because your presence and their presence meet together and you recognize each other. These things recognize you. They give their wisdom and their understanding to you when you come close to them, in the distance, you feel, ah, I'm going to go there and have a closer look. You know it is pulling you. When you, recognize, Joe Hudson. when you recognize it, it gives strength, a new flow. You have life now. Isn't that wonderful? What a terrific quote from your book, page 217, Swimming in yeah. the Sacred by Dr. Rachel Harris. Picture of the book. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us today, Rachel. Thank you so much, Richard. It's been delightful. <laughs> and thank you all, gentle listeners, for being with us today on this broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. We will be with you again next week because we come to you every week. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Hi, Eva Cheska here again. We hope that you enjoyed this episode of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, and we encourage you to share it with others. All of our programs are archived and are open source, which means that you can listen to them anytime, anywhere, anyplace through our website, free of charge. We also invite you to check out my dad's books, Psychedelic Medicine, The Healing Powers of LSD, MDMA, Psilocybin, and Ayahuasca, Psychedelic Wisdom, The Astonishing Rewards of Psychedelic Substances, and Integral Psychedelic Therapy, The Non-Ordinary Art of Psycho-Spiritual Healing, co-edited. Stay tuned for a new episode of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics every week. And if you want advance notice of our upcoming guests, you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Until next time, this is Evacheska DeAngelis wishing you good health. Oh.